Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the podcast. Our special guest today is John Westfall. Uh, John has hold, held many positions in the ALPO, uh, Lunar Recorder, Associate Director, Editor, Director, and he's currently uh, the coordinator of the Mercury and Venus Transit sections and the Galilean Satellite, satellite Eclipse Timing Program. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. Um, why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Well, um, I'm a retired college professor, and uh, I uh, live in Antioch, California, where we have plenty of clear skies, and I uh, joined the ALPO when I was a teenager back in 1953. Oh, my goodness. You've been a member yeah. a long time. You've been around forever. I know that. Every time I've seen you and you've seen... Okay. And um, like you said, I've held a number of offices in the ALPO. I directed it for a few years and edited our journal, The Strolling Astronomer. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as you mentioned, I now direct two sections, and I'm also a member of the board. 
and I've been going to the ALPO uh, conventions most most years since 1956. Are you planning to go to Georgia this year? Uh, if indeed we end up in Georgia, okay. the, the last I heard there was a possibility of meeting in Jacksonville instead. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay, but you plan on going this year? Oh, definitely. Oh, so do I. It's been a long time. <laughs> well, it'll be good to see you. Yeah, you too. And I have a burning question for you. Are you still are you still a pipe smoker? Uh, oh no, I stopped smoking in 1967. Oh, good. Every photograph I've ever seen of you, you've had a pipe in your mouth. So I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> I guess I need to have some more recent photos. <laughs> All right. Um, you worked with at Sh- or uh, were a member of Chabot Observatory too. Um, no, I actually don't belong to the Friends of Chabot Observatory. I belong to their amateur astronomy group, the East Bay uh, Astronomical Society, uh, with an interruption for a few years, but uh, I think I joined them back around 1947. Oh, goodness. And, and I'm also fairly active in a closer group called the Mount Diablo uh, Astronomical Association. Okay, so you're, you're, you're really involved with the local astronomy clubs, too. I think so. I go to meetings most most every month. That's good. Now, I'm reading over your bio and doing some research on you, I, I, I saw something about you, you have an expertise in air photo interpretation. Uh, I taught a course uh, okay. for about 20 years on that topic, uh, which overlaps my astronomy interest, obviously, because... Uh, it's an aspect of remote sensing. I see. Okay. All right. So you first got involved in the ALPO in 1953, you said? Yeah, that's when I joined. Yeah. What, t- t- talk about those early years. Well, um, of course, in 53, it was a young group. Mm-hmm. Walter Haas had started it in 1947. And most of the members were visual astronomers. Uh, They observed visually. They made sketches. There was a little photography done, but you got to remember this was way back in the film era. Right. Uh, The fastest black and white film had a speed of 200, and the fastest color film had a speed of 10. So you didn't find much lunar and planetary imaging uh, initially until Mm -hmm. better films came along anyhow. Uh, But the uh, organization and amateur activity really picked up with the launching of Sputnik and the beginning of the space age. Uh, Up till then, even in the professional world, planetary science was kind of a neglected orphan, you might say. Not many professionals were into it, and in some areas, most of the work was done by amateurs. Like, all the mapping of the moon was done by amateurs before the 1960s. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, um... There's a tendency in astronomy, I think, 
for the farther the object of study, the greater the prestige. Ah. Uh, that, that might have been part of it. And those professionals who were involved in planetary work, uh, say back in the 40s and the 50s, often had a geology background, hmm. particularly in lunar work. But um, astronomy in general um, started getting massive funding, at least compared to the early days, with, with the space era and the founding of NASA and more attention paid by the uh, you know, National Science Foundation. Uh, and so people started going more and more into planetary science. Uh, I frequently go to the annual professional meetings, mm-hmm. and you can get well over a thousand people at those. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Now, what are some of the major things you've seen happen in amateur astronomy over the years? Well, um, in in the equipment area, back again in the 50s, there was very little in the choice of commercial telescopes. And so amateur telescope making uh, was a much more popular activity then than now, uh, out of desperation, you might say. Mm-hmm. There was only a handful of commercial telescope manufacturers that catered at all to the amateur market. And, of course, there are a lot more now. Right. And uh, one interesting thing, I, I went back to my old 1953 Sky and Telescopes <laughs> and looked at the ads, mm-hmm. and I said, my goodness, Telescope prices then aren't too weren't too different from what they are now, except those were nineteen fifty three dollars. Yes, uh, and so of course you can spend a fortune if you want to on telescopic equipment, but you can get started for in terms of correcting for inflation. For far less money That's than true. it took then. And you have a greater choice. And getting beyond telescopes, we've moved on from film imaging to digital imaging, DSLRs, and then uh, CCDs. And now um, with image stacking of digital imagery, the amateurs are getting images that are far superior to the major observatories, say, in the 50s and 60s, and actually competitive sometimes to even the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah. Now, let's jump back a little bit about telescopes. I mean, you talked about telescope manufacturers. How about the amateur telescope-making Revolution that really took place too, like in those sixties. Uh, you're from the Bay Area. John Dobson was in that area with the sidewalk astronomers. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you saw Boone in that area as well. Oh yeah. Um, but one thing I have to say: the Dobsonian type of telescope is limited, mm-hmm. of limited use with 
lunar and planetary observing. That's true. Uh, mainly because it's on an Altasmus mount and thus difficult to track objects. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's technological solutions for, for about any problem, and you can get you know, equatorial platforms and so on for the Dobbs. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, even counting the Dobsonians, I, I don't see that much amateur telescope-making activity anymore. That's true, yeah. Um, there, there are some uh, who make excellent telescopes on their own. Um, usually, um, almost as works of art, mm -hmm. you might say. They look like furniture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you could uh, <laughs> put them in your living room and, and yeah. your wife wouldn't complain. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends on the wife. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but still... I think most of our people are using commercial instruments now. That's true. Now, what other technological advances have you seen? Well, I mentioned imaging, mm -hmm. you know, in brief. Um, but um, certainly my personal experience was that I'm very happy that digital imaging came along. I had a dark room in the basement of our house, and mm -hmm. I did developing, and I did enlarging, both black and white in color. But it was tedious. Uh, you didn't get your results right away. Um, there was only limited ability to do image processing. Now, with digital images... You know right away if it didn't turn out, and then you can try a different exposure. Uh, you can freely experiment on your computer. There's a wide variety of software available for image processing of all types. Uh, so I find imaging is a lot more fun now than in the film days. And the cameras really are relatively inexpensive as, as well. I mean, you can go you're, pretty you're cheap. Right. You're right. Again, you can spend a lot of money if you want to. Um, digital uh, single lens reflexes, you you can get a very good one for the order of a thousand dollars or so. Yeah, I, I actually when when digital cameras first came out, the little webcams that they had, I actually took one of those and converted it so I could take photographs through my telescope with that. Uh -huh. And you know that was a fifteen twenty dollar camera, so I. Had was able just to get you know first time images with that is it's a lot of fun. Something oh yeah, and the webcams have the virtue of giving you digital movies, so mm -hmm. you can accumulate a lot of frames and uh, process them in, in any of several image stacking programs, and really increase the resolution and reduce the effects of bad seeing. Seeing, atmospheric seeing has always been a problem with lunar and planetary work because you're operating at high magnifications. I'm not saying that uh, image stacking programs are seeing proof, mm -hmm. but it's less of a problem than it used to be. And also, the, the images you get now, all the digital images, are quantitative ones. So you can measure brightnesses and do photometry. 
before you had to buy a specialized photometer. Right. And uh, I know I have one, and I, I've used it for a number of years. But again, it's a bit tedious because you're constantly going back and forth between what you're studying and the comparison object. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, usually with digital images, they, you have one or more comparison objects on the same frame. Okay. Um, where do you see the future of amateur astronomy going? Well, there are some areas that the professionals are into that the amateurs have really just begun. Uh, one of them is spectroscopy. And, of course, professionals have been into spectroscopy well, really since the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some amateurs are doing that now. And how, how are they accomplishing that? Okay, well, you can buy a, a spectroscope for your telescope. Hmm. Or you can also, if you have a little mechanical ability, get a replica grating and build your own. Um and of course, that's valuable for things like studying planetary atmospheres. Okay. Then uh, uh, one area that the professionals have been getting into, say, for the last generation, is um, infrared in imaging. Now, amateurs have been imaging in the near infrared, but I'm talking about. You know, longer wavelengths. Okay. The, the amateurs, I admit, are at a disadvantage at that because you know how your telescope resolution is limited by diffraction. Right. And say with, with most visible light work, you're centered at about half a uh, micrometer wavelength. Well, in the middle infrared, you're at about five micrometers wavelength. Well, your your diffraction limited resolution is reduced by a factor of ten. Oh my! Yeah. Oh. Uh, so it's definitely an area for the larger amateur right. telescopes. Right. But now, you know, uh, in the when I got started. Probably the modal aperture, the most common aperture, was six inches. Right. And a large instrument would be a 12 or a 12 and a half. Mm-hmm. People would really uh, come by and admire your telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That big. Uh, I had well, a 12, I had a 12, and a half, 12 and a half inch cave for a while. That was oh, yeah. a yeah, monster scope. Cave. Did you? Yeah. And uh, now, now uh, you find amateurs fairly commonly with 16 or bigger, and 24 inches isn't that unusual. Right. Yeah, and I'd say with 24 inches, you could be doing some of the middle infrared imaging. Okay. And that, there's quite a few out there in the amateur world, too. Yes. What other areas do you see? 
Well, um, let's see. Um, there's been a lot more work with asteroids. Okay. Uh, our our ALPO uh, Minor Planet Section has been concentrating on photometry of asteroids, particularly getting their light curves as they rotate. And, and we, have, we have an upcoming podcast with Fred to discuss the Minor Planet section as well. So, Okay, well, well that's good. Yeah. Because most of the work, work there is being done by amateurs. See, the, the professionals have bigger telescopes, and they got a lot more money, <laughs> but but they have less telescopes. Right. And the amateurs, particularly retired people like me, have a lot more time. Mm-hmm. So anything that requires a lot of time, a lot of monitoring, the amateurs have a distinct advantage. Uh, also, they're more geographically dispersed, and they're more mobile. And uh, another asteroid area where amateurs are contributing a lot is in asteroid occultations of stars. And i got to admit, there, the most of the work is done outside of the ALPO mm-hmm. by the IOTA, International Occultation Timing Association. Right. And... The predictions of the shadow paths of asteroids when they occult stars have gotten good enough that IOTA people flock to the, uh, you could call it the eclipse track, Mm -hmm. and line themselves up along and at right angles to the eclipse track and get a lot of cross-sections of the same asteroid. Yeah, anyone can go to their profile. Yeah, anyone can go to their website and sign up to be on their notification system and when there's a occultation in your area, you get an automatic email telling you right. when I've, and where. I've to... observed several of them. I have to being lazy and not even leaving my backyard. <laughs> if they're coming to you, that's the good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Another area where monitoring is very useful is lunar meteoroid impacts. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's an area where the professionals poo-pooed any reports of flashes on the moon. Uh, But in the, well, I guess it was maybe as late as the early 90s, we started to videotape the dark side of the moon, the night hemisphere. Right. And, of course, even then, to get a flash on your videotape, it might be you know, a cosmic ray strike on, on your uh, video sensor. But if you have two people re- recording the same flash at the same moment at different locations on Earth, then all of a sudden it's hard to argue that nothing happened. That's true. And although NASA also is monitoring the dark side of the moon, uh, its amateurs are doing putting in most of the telescope hours. 
And that's Brian Kudnick that has our um, charge of the lunar meteorotic uh, endpoint impact search with the ALP, I believe. That's right. Yeah, he's go- he's going to. I've talked to him, in fact, today about doing an upcoming podcast as well. So be that'd be a good idea. Yeah, get him on as well. Good. No, and um, well, I've been stressing the developments in both you know professional planetary work and amateur planetary work. And I think uh, even if the amateurs choose not to get involved in a scientific program in in cooperation with professionals, uh, there's nothing wrong with amateurs pursuing planetary and lunar work Mm -hmm. just as an avocation. It's a great way of educating yourself. I, I look at the planetary sketches I started to make in the early 1950s and noticed how year after year I, I started seeing more. Mm-hmm. It's a way of training your eye. And, and I think also there's spillover from the professionals in the space program that now you have a lot better idea of what you're looking at. Uh, I don't think anybody's spending much time looking for Martian canals anymore. No, no, I don't yeah. think so. I don't think so. Yeah. What you mentioned though about not. what you mentioned about your drawings changing over the over time period—that's one thing I really stress in the training program too. I mean, that's I've, good. I've had students come in and after they make five drawings, they say, "Can I graduate now?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> not really." <laughs> you know, you got to show me systematic observations, and you see the improvement. You know of what of what they're doing. That's why I have them focus on one or two areas of the moon and just make good thirty or forty drawings of that, and they see the change at the end, and they know when they're going to graduate at that point. That type of thing. Now you, you talk about amateur and professional. Um, has I know the ALPO has had a lot of collaboration. Do you still see that going on, and where do you see the future of that? Okay, I think it's going to continue. Like I say, in the areas where you need a lot of telescope time, Mm -hmm. where you have someone who has the ability to monitor some looking for changes, uh, planetary atmospheres, such as, uh, well, we talked about lunar meteoroid impacts, but people have also videotaped flashes on Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And there... Uh, the, the professional always suffers from lack of telescope time. There's just so much competition. Uh, all the major observatories are oversubscribed. That uh, They turn away observers because there's not just enough hours in the night. And I talked to a lot of professional astronomers, and their thing is I got into this to look through a telescope, and they haven't looked through a telescope in years. Well, that's right. Yeah. Now now they may not even see the observatory because the, many of them are operated remotely. Right. Of course, that's something that, that the more advanced amateurs or maybe the better off amateurs have been getting into as well as having their own observatory but remotely operated so that they don't regularly even have to go to it. To me, of course, that sort of takes away part of the reason that I got into this avocation. Exactly right. Yeah. So what, what 
let's let's go back in time. What got you into astronomy? What what event? In your oh life? dear. <laughs> well, I can be quite specific. Uh, it was the Lincoln Library of Essential Knowledge that my parents had, and in the astronomy section, uh, the astronomy entry. They had a real neat photograph of Saturn. What was that, like the Encyclopedia Britannica type thing? Uh, yeah, except a much smaller two-volume <laughs> okay. encyclopedia. It's a picture of Saturn. Yeah. <laughs> and what was your first telescope? A skyscope. And 29.95, three and a half inches aperture. Do you still have it? Nope. Uh, do I regret it. I, uh, I, it. <laughs> I, I moved on to a four-inch Tinsley refractor, and that was my main telescope for a couple decades. Yeah. What are you using now? What, Pardon me? What type of telescope are you using now? Uh, I, I've been, uh, after the 10-inch cave reflector, I went to... Uh, Celestron, I'm afraid. I don't want to give a commercial endorsement here, but not a problem. That's my personal experience, and I have a nine and a quarter now. Okay, just easier to lug around. I know the older I get, the more portable telescope I want to carry with me. <laughs> yeah, I have the same experience. I I have it in a uh, one of those prefabricated sheds in the backyard. And I wheel it in and out of the shed. There you go. So what do you see for the future? Well, um, like I said, in terms of scientific work, the amateur is just beginning to move into spectroscopy and uh, uh, the uh, infrared, mid-infrared range. Uh, But... I th- right, right now, I think that um, in terms of scientific work, mm-hmm. it's going to continue to be digital imaging for quite a while. Okay. Um, including, particularly, software improvements, particularly, perhaps, even now, the image stacking process is a complex enough, I think it's maybe turning off some people who could be turning up very good images if they if they had a more user-friendly program. Hmm. Maybe, maybe increased automation. Okay, makes it a little easier, huh? Yeah. And of course, we do have an ongoing problem that although sometimes there are been local improvements in general is getting worse which is light pollution right and I, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic I can't really see that problem as being solved for urban areas and of mm-hmm. course 80% of the population lives in urban areas even the dark sky areas that I have down here in Southern California are no longer dark sky areas uh-huh. Yeah. Encroachment of people. So we might find more and more use of remote observatories. Either you set up your own observatory in one of the few remaining dark sky areas and operate it remotely, 
Or, of course, you can rent telescope time now, uh, including you know places like South Africa and so on. So you might find more uh, by subscription remote observing okay. for those areas of lunar and planetary work where start dark skies are a problem or where rather light pollution is a problem uh, that would be going after fainter objects such as the uh, fainter asteroids for comet work you know, light pollution is a serious problem that's true uh, for monitoring the bright planets or the, the moon, not so serious. Mm-hmm. I think that's why that's why I got into the ALPO at a young age because I lived in a brightly lit neighborhood. There was a streetlight right across the street from my house. Uh-huh. I'd pull my telescope out and what could I see? Oh, there's the moon and there's Venus and Mars and Saturn. Okay, that's all I can see, and that's what I ended up. Yeah. Yeah. Focusing on. Now, you've been in the organization for a long time. You have also are involved with local astronomy clubs. Give me your state of amateur astronomy address. What's, what do you feel, where do you feel it's at right now? Amateur astronomy in general? Yeah. Well. Loaded question, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, the people I see... Uh, at the national conventions and the local meetings are older than they used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, You used to be able to count on a uh, group of perhaps a little obnoxious teenagers in the front rows. You don't see them anymore. They're my age now, John. (laughs) I I, I used to be one. Yes. (laughs) So... The long-term prospects, I think, will always have amateur astronomy, mm-hmm. but we've we got to come up with a way to get the young people more interested. We all have outreach programs, and we right. go to the local schools with our telescopes and set them up, and I think that does some good, but in terms of I don't know, the impression the general public gets, I think, is that astronomy is something that's done only with giant telescopes by professionals or involving spacecraft. And uh, we've all seen a lot of documentaries, many of them quite good on, on astronomical and space topics. But they very rarely mention uh, amateur work in the area. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's it's something I've been struggling with in the training program as well, is trying to find younger people to come in, because now my average student is someone that's just retired and has, mm-hmm. and has the ability to spend the time to do the observations now. So it's really been a dynamic shift over the last 10, 15 years in the training program. To see, uh-huh. it, and, and that's that's frustrating. You know, we want to bring the younger people in, and that's one of the hopes I had using this medium, the podcast medium, where people would be searching around for astronomy. And hey, here we are, and you can join the ALPO for only fourteen dollars a year. I mean, yeah, you, uh-huh. that's cheaper than a DVD. <laughs> so, 
you know, know. that type of thing. But I, I really, you know, I'd like to find some magic pill that brings more people in because it's a, it's a rewarding hobby. It really is. Well, maybe uh, given the solar eclipse this summer, that might generate some interest. That's a good point. We do have a podcast on that. I talked to uh, our our executive director, Mike uh, Reynolds, Mike Reynolds, and we have a nice podcast available for that too, where he lays out the entire eclipse and how to observe it and everything. So, good, good. Yeah. So, is there anything additional that you like to talk about? Well, I, I. Wrote down a few notes, okay. but I think we've gone through um, well the major points I wanted to address. Okay, now you you're an author too. You the Atlas of uh, the Lunar Terminator. Is that the yeah? Is that and book still available on Amazon? Probably. I haven't really checked lately. Okay. Um, there's also. Um, you know, you mentioned I'm uh, the coordinator of the Mercury and Venus transit section, and Bill Sheehan and I did a book on transits of Venus That's that true. I think is still available. Right. And more recently, uh, we we had a book uh, that Springer has published that I'm pretty sure is still available on... Um, I'm trying to remember the exact title, Celestial Shadows, uh, Eclipses, Transits, and Occultations. Okay. So how can everybody get a hold of you? Well, probably the best way is by email. Uh, and the address is my name, uh, all one word, lowercase, J-O-H-N-W-E-S-T-F-A-L-L, at comcast.net okay and I will put that also in the show notes so people can just read the show notes and and I'll put also if I can find links to your books I'll add them in there as well okay well let's see uh, I mentioned Springer uh, as the publisher for the latest book okay uh, Prometheus for the book Bill and I did on transits of Venus and then the original publisher of the Lunar Terminator book was Cambridge. But I'm, I'm dubious that you could get it through Cambridge anymore. Okay. You might try. All right, we will look. All right, John, well, I want to really thank you for coming on the podcast. Okay, I'm glad you've had the chance. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the, of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, John Westfall, for coming on today to give us his views of the changes of amateur astronomy over the past years. We upload a new episode of, of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes. And we're also available on Google Play and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving as little as a dollar a month. If you give up to $35 a month, you will receive one year's free membership to the ALPL and be the producer of the podcast. With that, I'd like to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his real generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. 
The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at timrobertson56. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy. And also, this podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. The ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.